Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Occlusion is defined as the contact of teeth in function or parafunction between the maxillary and mandibular arch. It's also uh, concerned with the contact relationship between the teeth of the same arch. Now, occlusion affects general and dental health as it relates to comfort and our ability to effectively chew and enjoy food. Occlusion is also concerned with all factors that are involved in the development, stability, and function of the masticatory system. It involves the teeth and the surrounding structures, the TMJ, the muscles, the lips, the tongue, as well as the related nerves and blood vessels. In this episode, we are going to cover the angles classification system, which is the system that we use to document our patient's occlusion in the assessment process of our appointment. Let's just go over some of the related terms in occlusion. Now, ideal occlusion implies a complete harmonious relationship of the teeth and other structures. And this is what we're aiming for for proper function. Malocclusion is any deviation from that ideal positioning of the teeth, whether it's a minor deviation of one tooth or severe variation involving several teeth or the jaws. And functional malocclusion is an occlusal deviation that's created by a habit or a muscular dysfunction. Now, when we're talking about the arrangement of the teeth in the dental arches, the curve of SPEE is viewed from the buccal aspect, and it is noted as an anatomical line beginning at the tip of the canines and following the buccal cusps of the posterior teeth. When we're referring to the curve of Wilson, that is a curve that follows the cusp tips as seen from the frontal view and it's a gradual curve from the left to right side. Intercuspation is the relationship between the cusps of the teeth of one arch as they occlude with the cusps of the teeth on the opposing arch. In ideal occlusion, there are 138 occlusal contacts in the closure of 32 permanent teeth. A memory tip for curve of SPEE, S, is the side view. So curve of SPEE is the side view of the occlusal plane going from the canines to the posterior teeth. The curve of Wilson, W, is wide, so the smile going from left to right. There's your memory tip for the curve of SPEE and curve of Wilson. I hope these help. Let's talk about jaw relationship. Jaw relationship refers to the position of the mandible as it relates to the maxilla. Now the mandible articulates with the skull right at the TMJ, and it moves and changes its position in relation to the maxilla. Remember, the mandible moves. The maxillary arch is stable or stationary. 
And you can't talk about occlusion without talking about vertical dimension. Vertical dimension is the height of the lower third of the face. It's involved in the proper functioning of the teeth and the aesthetic appearance. When you lose teeth or alveolar bone or attrition, you lose the vertical dimension of that third of the face as a result. Now let's also define the difference between centric relation and centric occlusion. Centric relation is the position of the mandible relative to the maxilla in the most retruded position. It's the base measurement that's used to evaluate occlusion. And it's the relationship of the upper and lower jaws without tooth contact. Now, centric occlusion is the maximum contact between the maxillary and mandibular teeth. And it's related to the contact of the teeth, the occlusion, not by muscle or bone. Now, those cusps that function during centric occlusion are the lingual cusps of the maxillary posterior teeth, the buccal cusps of the mandibular teeth, and the incisal edges of the anterior teeth. Centric stops are the areas of contact that are supporting cusps that they make with the opposing teeth. And this involves cusp contours, marginal ridges, and central fossa. Parafunctional habits are movements of the mandible that are not within the normal range of motion. And these are associated with clenching, grinding or bruxism, a tongue thrust or other habits. And they occur more commonly and in longer duration than the motions associated with normal function and chewing. The difference between clenching and bruxism, in clenching, the teeth are in centric occlusion for very long periods of time without giving the mandibular arch a rest. Now, bruxism, also known as grinding, is forceful grinding of the teeth together, which often causes an audible noise. Patients that present with clenching and bruxism usually have enlarged masseter muscles, and they consider it normal to feel the tension in their facial and masticatory muscles because they're used to it. And clenching and bruxism may be a result of stress or how an individual processes neurological impulses. They may present with attrition of the masticatory surfaces, presented as wear facets in the posterior teeth and incisal wear on the anterior teeth. You may notice an overdeveloped masseter muscle when you're doing your extra oral exam. Something else that you may notice during your assessment that would give rise to the thought that your patient has some parafunctional habits is ab fractions. Now, ab fractions are wedge-shaped cervical lesions that are usually seen on teeth that also have occlusal wear. These lesions are most frequently found on the surfaces opposite the surface with the most wear. They're usually found on individuals that have malaligned cusps that are subject to heavy oblique occlusal loads. Now, we can't talk about ab fractions unless we talk about abrasion as well. So it's important to know the distinction between them. So talking about ab fraction, it's the loss of tooth structure through tensile and compressive forces during tooth flexure. Now, there's a lot of torque that is put on the tooth during long periods of clenching right at the cervical region. 
And abfractions can be affected on both facial and lingual cervical areas. And it creates a deep, narrow V-shaped notch right at the junction, right at the CEJ typically. And it commonly affects single teeth that have heavy occlusal loads. Now, the distinction between an abfraction and abrasion, in abrasion, it's loss of tooth structure through friction from either toothbrushing and or toothpaste. And it's usually located at the facial cervical areas. The lesions are more deep than they are wide. And think about how that's affected by toothbrushing. The canines are commonly affected because of their position in the arch. So it's important for you to look at these class five areas and make the distinction of connecting the dots together to make the determination if this is an abfraction you're looking at or abrasion. Now, another parafunctional habit is tongue thrust, which the functional deviation occurs with the habitual incorrect placement and use of the tongue, lips, and the mandible. And this can create an open bite in the anterior region. And you want to make the distinction between that and thumb sucking. So thumb sucking can also cause an anterior open bite. So you want to do some checking to make the distinction which parafunctional habit you're looking at. There are ways to explain and describe the relationship of how the mandible occludes with the maxilla. And this is what we're going to be learning. Now, facial profiles are determined by the distance between the most lateral point on the opposite sides of the head. When we are relating this to occlusion, we're discussing the distance between the frontal bone to the foramen magnum that's located on the occipital bone. Now this measurement provides us with a level of discrepancy between the maxilla and the mandible and how they relate with one another. So picture that the mandible moves and the relationship of the frontal bone as it relates to the location of the anterior border of the chin creating that side profile. And that side profile has different names and that is documented as the association between how the maxilla and mandible relate to one another. And if you pay attention to the facial profile, it will help you make a more accurate uh, assessment of the actual occlusion of the teeth. Now in a mesognathic profile, the anterior border of the frontal bone aligns with the most anterior border of the chin. It's parallel. So that side profile has a straight line from the frontal bone of the forehead to the most anterior portion of the chin. And this is typically seen in a class one occlusion. In a retrognathic profile, the chin is slightly distal to the alignment with the frontal bone. And this is typically seen in a class two disto-occlusion configuration. So when the chin is slightly distal to the maxilla, this is typically a class two occlusion. In a prognathic profile, the chin is mesial to the alignment with the frontal bone. And this is typically seen in a class three mesio-occlusion configuration. And we'll talk about those configurations next. Let's take a look at angles classification of occlusion. 
It's the most popular classification system that's used today. It makes the assumption that the patient is occluding in centric occlusion. And this system is based primarily on the relationship of the first molars and canines. Let's start with your benchmark of a class one ideal normal occlusion. The molar relationship is that the mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar occludes with the mesial buccal groove of the mandibular first molar. The canine relationship in class one ideal occlusion is that the maxillary canine occludes with the distal half of the mandibular canine and the mesial half of the mandibular first premolar. The facial profile in a class one occlusion is mesognathic. Now let's think about class one neutral occlusion, which the molar relationship is the same as ideal occlusion and the canine relationship is the same as ideal occlusion. And the facial profile is the same as ideal occlusion. The only exception is that there's malpositioning of individual or groups of teeth in neutral occlusion, class one. And this is your benchmark. So this is a little deviation from the ideal occlusion. So think of the ideal occlusion as a typodont that has perfect occlusion and every tooth is in perfect alignment and form and function is followed between every tooth. And this is what you will aim for when you're providing your patient with occlusal intervention, but neutral occlusion is much more common. So there'll be some malpositioning of individual teeth. In class two, division one, disto occlusion, the molar relationship is that the mesial buccal groove of the mandibular first molar is distal to the mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar. The canine relationship is that the distal surface of the mandibular canine is distal to the mesial surface of the maxillary canine. The maxillary incisors in division one are protruded and the facial profile is retrognathic. Now, when the distance is less than the width of the premolar, it's classified as a tendency. And we'll talk about tendencies after I go over the different classifications. In class two, division two, the molar relationship and canine relationship are the same as division one. The difference is that the maxillary incisors are retruded the facial profile is still retrognathic. Now think about this. Sometimes in a retruded position, because the incisors are tipped back, you can sometimes have a mesognathic profile. So you may not notice that your patient has a class two occlusion upon initial view. In a class three mesial occlusion, the molar relationship is that the mesial buccal groove of the mandibular first molar is mesial to the mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar. The canine relation is that the distal surface of the mandibular canine is mesial to the mesial surface of the maxillary canine. The facial profile is prognathic. 
Let's talk about tendencies because students sometimes get confused on when it's a tendency. So if class one is your benchmark, so the mesial buccal groove on the mandibular first molar is in alignment with the mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar in a class one occlusion. If that mesial buccal groove is slightly distal to the mesial buccal cusp on the maxillary arch, then you are in disto occlusion. So slightly off is a class two tendency. If that mesial buccal groove is slightly mesial to the maxillary mesial buccal cusp, then you have a class three tendency. If the mesial buccal groove on the mandibular first molar is distal to the mesial buccal cusp on the maxillary first molar by at least seven millimeters, then you have a true class two occlusion. If the mesial buccal groove is mesial to the maxillary mesial buccal cusp at least seven millimeters, you have a true class three. But if it's less than seven millimeters, or also known as the width of a premolar, then you would call that a tendency, meaning that the benchmark is a class one. And if you're slightly distal to that benchmark, then you have a tendency towards a class two. And if the mandible is slightly mesial to that benchmark, then you have a tendency towards a class three. There are times where you will have to use the canines to make the determination of occlusion. And we only use the canines if there's a reason not to use the molars. Perhaps there's a missing premolar on one arch that would throw off the occlusal relationship between the molars. Or maybe there is a missing molar. So you have to do your hard tissue charting before your occlusal assessment and keep this in mind as you're doing it. When you are trying to make a determination of relationship between the canines to do your occlusal assessment, take a look at the cusp tip. It's much harder for students when you're first learning to look at the cusp ridges. The cusp tip in class one occlusion of the maxillary canine should reside right in the embrasure space on the mandible between the canine and the first premolar. So that cusp tip should sit right between the mandibular canine and first premolar, right in the embrasure space. If the mandibular arch is distal to that and the canine cusp tip is pointing on the canine or in front of the canine, you're more towards a class two. If the mandible is mesial to that and the cusp tip of the maxillary canine is pointing more between the two premolars, then you're headed towards a class three occlusion. So if the cusp tip of the maxillary canine is pointed right into the embrasure space, between the mandibular canine and first premolar, you have a class one occlusion. For a class two occlusion, the cusp tip of the maxillary canine is in the embrasure space between the canine and the lateral. And for a class three occlusion, the cusp tip of the maxillary canine is residing between the embrasure space of the two premolars. So it resides between the first and second premolar embrasure space. If you are off slightly, you're looking towards a tendency. 
Occlusion can be really complicated when you're first learning it. If you're needing additional help and resources, I have an activity page and some lecture study guide sheets that you can access through the link in the show notes. Perhaps that would be what you need to really tie this all together. Getting a good understanding of angles classification, molar and canine relationship is complicated and takes a lot of clinical practice. So be kind to yourself as you're learning about occlusion. In a later episode, we're going to discuss proper documentation of all the different aspects of your occlusal assessment and also ways that you can help your patient manage malocclusion and other periodontal issues that occur as a result of their occlusal assessment results. Take the time to really study and learn how the tooth morphology relates to the relationship of the dental arches so that you can properly assess your patient in the occlusal assessment process. Thanks so much for listening today. In the next episode, we will be taking a close look at dental anomalies. We'll talk about the impact, the clinical presentation, as well as the descriptive ways for the clinician to document their findings when they treat a patient who presents in the clinical setting with any of these abnormalities. Please join me. invite you to ask any questions at all that you need. Maybe a question comes up while you're listening to this podcast. Please feel free to send me any questions that you have. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. 